Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to lead sports scientist at Aston Villa Football Club, Jack Sharkey. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I can't believe we are actually at episode 259. I've just looked back through a few of the last few episodes and um, yeah, 259. Anyway, so yeah, Jack Sharkey coming up. This was based on a video that I saw of Jack presenting at a catapult meetup. And it was all focused, it's only about 12 to 15 minutes long, so you can get it on YouTube, um, but it focuses around multi-mechanical models. Now, this is a way of presenting and detailing data for coaches to make it a little bit more game-specific or relatable to a game. So it's a really interesting concept. Not a lot of research around it, but um, but Jack does mention a couple of Woodock one or more papers in this chat around this concept. So this episode focuses around that. So what it is, identifying relevant metrics, feeding back to coaches, um, setting individual targets and different weightings for different metrics. Some really interesting chat. We also discussed Jack's very interesting kind of rise to the Premier League through League Two, League One, Championship and finally Premiership, how that how each league differs in terms of what's expected of him and his delivery and his his role within the club at them different um, and, and them different leagues. And also finishing off with integrating subjective and objective data and some really interesting views from Jack with regards to subjective markers. So it's gonna be a really interesting episode and definitely one I'm sure you'll absolutely love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU-STEP from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running-based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jack Sharkey. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome lead sports scientist at Aston Villa Football Club, Jack Sharkey. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Hello, thank you for having me. So despite some technical issues over the last <laughs> few weeks when we've tried to actually line this up, I'm delighted to get Jack back on. So in true podcast fashion, tradition, true podcast tradition, um, anyone doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a quick background on yourself, your education yep. and what you're currently doing at Aston Villa. Yeah, of course. Um, so my background, I'll start at university, went to Bangor University initially. Um, I suppose I didn't do a degree that specialised within high performance sport, but I did sports science in outdoor activities initially. Um, so that was a sports science degree, but aimed towards your outdoor pursuits. So mountaineering, climbing, kayaking, with the ambition of becoming an outdoor coach. Um, 
Following that, I worked in Switzerland for a bit, worked in a gym, and then it wasn't until I did a master's at Loughborough University where I did exercise physiology, where that that drive and, and focus towards high-performance sport really came. Um, so while I was at Loughborough University, I did an internship with the Nike Football Academy, which was around at the time. Um, got my first experience of working within a football environment, albeit with with academy students, but you got to learn about the, the dynamics of the sport. And then upon graduation, I actually got in touch with two clubs. One was Burton Albion, one was Derby County. Sent two blank letters to the club saying, look, I'd like to come in. Um, worded slightly differently, but basically Derby got back in touch with the generic, uh, sorry that there's no... Uh, positions at the moment we haven't got really anything available but thank you for getting in touch and then Burton actually got me in so I went straight into Burton Albion I actually met with Gary Rowett who'd just become manager and it was I suppose coincidence that he was looking for someone to fill that role at the time of my contact so I was quite lucky in that sense uh, to get my foot in the door because I now understand how hard it is especially these days to get to get into a club um so I, I started at Burton Albion. I, I went in with an initial approach saying, look, I'll do eight weeks. I'll do it for free. Uh, everything that you try and do to try and get into a club in the first place. Um, but he said, no, we'll, we'll, give, you a, we'll give you a paid position. Um, obviously, there was no sports science set up ever in the club's history at that point. So I'd basically been given a clean slate to do whatever I deemed necessary. Um, and it started from there, really. So I got my experience within Burton Albion. We, we had a bit of success. We got to a playoff semi-finals. Um, obviously, we lost, but uh, next season we kicked on again. Semi uh, playoff finalists the next year. Um, again, failed again. But you got that experience of working within an environment with no equipment, no GPS. Uh, we had to fight to get heart rate monitors. We had to fight to get gym equipment, and we, we really were under constraints of financially and um, and facility wise. So. It made you appreciate what was important and what wasn't important at the time. Um, and when I say we, we had no staff as well. We, we had myself, obviously the sports scientist. We had one physio. And, and over that time, we had an analyst who, who was an intern with me and, and developed into an analyst at the club. So we were really the bare bones of a club. Um, anyway, that third year comes, Gary Rowett leaves, Jimmy Floyd Hasbank comes in, slight change, but we kick on, win the league. Um, so getting to League One for the first time. And then from League One, we get promoted to the champ. Then when we get to the championship, that's when I get these offers to, to move to other clubs. So I have a choice to make and I end up going to Queen's Park Rangers with, with Hasselbank. Um, so that was my first experience of work within championship football and how that differed from a lower league club. Uh, and I suppose I learned more in that one year at Queen's Park Rangers than I did the entire time at Burton Albion in terms of the politics of, of football and how to work with... Uh, a multi-department team as, as as you were so that was that was a big experience for me and that was a big learning curve in my own development um then from that after a year i got an opportunity to come to aston villa i came over got the position uh tom allen actually left for arsenal so opened up a position here so i replaced him here and then obviously yeah a couple of years got another promotion to the premier league and now here i am as lead sports scientist at Aston Villa. So that's my pathway, really. A bit of luck, um, just learning along the way, and that's how I've got to, to where I am today. That's class. So I don't know how other, other people feel about this, but I always find this bit really interesting, talking about um, guest backgrounds. So just talking about your yeah. work, making your way into Burton, were yeah, they actually, what, what league were they at the time? Were they League Two at the time, as before you got there? So they were in League Two. I think they've been in League Two a year, maybe two. Um, so they come from a conference team into the Football League. Um, uh, Gary Rowett had just become manager that summer, so he hadn't actually managed in the league yet. And he was creating, he had this ambition to create a team around him. He was a newer manager who wanted an analysis department. He wanted a sports science department, which I suppose at the time within that league was, was quite a novel approach and a forward thinking approach as a manager. And you can see how far that's got him within his own career. Um, so, so what year was that, Jack? That was 2012. So it was 2012-2013 season. That's when I first started. Okay, cool. Yeah. So just just diving into the, the letter writing um, thing that you mentioned, do you get letters written to you? Because I know that yes. I did exactly yeah. the same as you did. Um, but has, has that method of communication for writing jobs changed? No, no, you get different approaches. Um I get letters quite regularly uh, via LinkedIn, uh, via the post. 
all different approaches. Some people set out a, a list of this is what I'm qualified in. This is my degree with no experience, but these are my qualifications. Can I have a job? The, the ones that really annoy me was when people just get in touch out of the blue. No hello, thank yous or anything like that. Just literally, is there a job for me? <laughs> I literally get them all the time. It's just people writing and not being rude when I don't reply. I just think it's rude that you would contact a club saying, give me a job. You wouldn't do that in any other profession. But you, time and time again, you get these letters come in just expecting expecting work because you've got a degree. And it's a bit disrespectful to people who've, who've had to work quite hard, relentlessly, to, to develop a career within this uh, industry. Because it is hard. It is hard. You have to put up with a lot. Um, so I think people need to realise that when they approach. So I suppose when, uh, I don't want to be hypocritical here because that was how I got in. But you, you need to approach it by saying, what can you do to the club? If that's the way you want to approach a club, say what you can do to help them. So I think the contents of my first letter were... I've got an eight-week plan. This is the, the the bones of it of how I would develop the team. If it's something that would be of use, I'd like to come in and help out and assist wherever I can to deliver that. And that, I think that's why they got me in. They wanted to see how I could better the team, not just because I'd been to university. Um, I'm not going to go into a club, and, or I'm not going to go to a manager or a coach and say how a team should play because they're the players, they're the managers who've had these years and years of experience, which is invaluable. Me as someone who's just come from university, I can't be expected to to tell them how to do that. So why do we do it with with sports science and medicine? It's a bit, yeah, it's just a bit different. It's just out of interest. Obviously, there's no sports science department at Burton. So who was that letter actually <laughs> no, written to? It went straight to Gary Rowett. Um, just put the manager's name on it. You got to understand that Burton Albion at the time was a very small club. You could write a letter to the manager and he would open it. <laughs> so it, it was a club that was just down the road from me as well. So we're talking a two-minute walk from my house. Uh, so you had this, I was quite lucky in, in locality, really. I just said, look, I'm just around the corner. I can come in. And I think that did help in a way as well. So I just want to keep going and dive into a bit more of your journey because it's super unique in the fact that you've gone yeah. from League Two yeah. to League One, uh, Championship and Premiership, especially for someone so young in such a, a short space of time. So I want to ask you, what yeah. impact were you having at Burton in the early days? So you find for equipment, uh, heart rates, facilities not great. What impact were you having day to day at Burton? Well, it's interesting because you have to try and periodise training in some shape or form. Ultimately, that's our job. We have the game as our, as our benchmark in terms of the physical demands that we're trying to prepare a player for. And we have to try and periodise training to, to, to get them to that stage. So at the time, like I said, we had to find, we managed to get heart rate units. We had the Polar 2 system at the club. And in fact, a lot of our data was probably from that internal loading. We used that to try and get the players uh, stimulated in a way to be prepared for the game because uh, that was our only means of, of monitoring throughout the week. So we'd use, I think it was red zones. So times above 85% of their heart rate max and, and periodized sessions, depending on how much exposure we're going to get to that leading into a week. Um, we used a lot more subjective data. We use RPEs. Um, did that quite religiously for two years. After the two years, I got to the point where I just didn't feel it was was of any benefit to us anymore because you might use it as a, a pre, uh, uh, the start of a conversation with a player to see how they're feeling, but just get rid of that stage, just speak to the players, get to know them. Well, I was looking away that the players that I was involved in from the start stayed with the club pretty much the entire time I was there. So you got to know them personally, you got to know about their lifestyles, their families, um, what they did in the spare time. You got to know them as people. And so when you come into like second, third year working with the same people, it's a bit stupid me going up to them and saying, what's, how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10? You just got to know how they were feeling. And you, you're always put in a difficult position, I see, as sports scientists, because ultimately your job is to support the manager. I think, I think you are there to support the manager to do his job in how he wants to play and how he wants the team to conduct themselves. But on the same side, you have to be in a position where you can have a conversation with a player and get an honest answer. They don't see you as someone they can't, or they don't feel comfortable speaking to. So you have to find that balance of when a player does need to be protected, you have that ability to get that message across to a player, uh, to a manager or a coach without going up to saying, well, it's a 10 today on an RPE scale, but to be able to reason with them to get them to be protected and things like that. So, I suppose they were the tools that we were using more to prepare for games. It was more getting to know your players, um, 
with the equipment that we had, we would use it. But ultimately, we missed out a lot of, I suppose, your external workload. We had no GPS and things like that. So we'd look at timings a lot more. And that was it. It was very crude and rudimentary. But I suppose that's what what you have to do as a sports scientist in the lower leagues at that time. I know resources and times have changed now. We've got more money in those lower leagues. But that's ultimately what we had to do. So you get promoted to League One. Obviously, the, the club may um, have accrued a yeah. little bit more money for, for you and, and the department. Then you move to QPR. So go, go into a completely different environment, a club that traditionally hasn't necessarily struggled for money, um, di- cl- um, staff in different positions, um, a little bit more maybe money to spend on equipment and yeah, facilities. That was, what was, was that like? That was different. Um, I was lucky in a way. So when I went, that was the first time I was, I suppose, not reporting but had someone in a position above me within my department so I was lucky enough to work with Chris Barnes while I was at Queen's Park Rangers and he was so he came in at the same time as me and it was great to work under him um, because uh, anyone who's aware of Chris Barnes you, you appreciate what a wealth of information he is and he's been around the block for so long he can give you that invaluable information that I probably wasn't exposed to before but resources wise obviously the gym was ridiculous in comparison to what we had at Burton. Um, we had no equipment at Burton Albion. You had to you had to find ways in which we could get equipment into the gym. So one thing we did was we had no gym equipment. So we set up with the Community Trust uh, a project called Fit Fans. So Fit Fans was a scheme aimed at the public. So we'd get the the fans in there to do a boot camp. They would pay a little bit of money, some bits of money to attend, but would also get... Which you would run? Yeah. yeah, I'd run that. I'd run that. So it'd be uh, like on a Thursday evening. There'd be only be about 20 people. But at the time, I don't know if it's still running, but the FA had an initiative where if you ran these programs, they give you money to help buy equipment for it. Um, so we'd get that money as funding. I'd have to go and do talks at Rotary Clubs and, and charity events and explain what we're doing for the community and how we're helping people get fit. Um, and they would donate to the club. But indirectly, that equipment would buy would, help to stock the gym that's the kind of situation we're in at Burton so when you go to QPR and they've got a gym kitted out already it was, it was breath of fresh air and I, I think I'm like that today now I think I still carried the hangover of those Burton days where I still feel bad asking for equipment I still feel if there's equipment and you have to validate bringing it in I still feel like is it actually going to be worth the money that we're going to spend on so I need to get rid of that I think but um yeah so it was completely different it was not in a good way in a good way but uh, I suppose it makes you realize that just because something looks nice and it looks like it belongs in a gym, if it's not getting used, just get rid of it. Have the space. <laughs> that's my that's my idea on it at the moment. Anyway, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's actually working in League One at the minute, and I won't mention the name or the name of the club or the person. Then that's slightly unfair, but they were actually approached by a college who was struggling for placement places for their students. And this person negotiated a fee for each student who comes into the club and spends time at the club and learns from the people at the club. So that then that then that money that was brought in was actually then used or part of that was used by the department to buy equipment and buy things that were needed. So you've got to be resourceful when you're in that kind of League Two, yeah. League One yeah. bracket, when money's the, the club's not awash with money for a performance department. You've got to be super resourceful to make things work for you. Yeah, and I think it's important to use your contacts that you make along those journeys as well. Um, so while we're at Burton, obviously we had no testing facilities, but my nutrition uh, tutor at uh, Loughborough, Ian Roller, he worked for the Gatorade Institute of Sport. So you get in touch with him. They had an initiative where they were getting people tested, doing... I don't know, Wingate tests and um, blood group samples and things like that. And you were able to get access to these these bits of equipment and facilities that you would never be able to afford as a club. But because you already knew that contact, you could get the players over to Loughborough, get them tested and get information that you would never be able to to get uh, before. So it's important to to utilise those people in the industry that you that you know already. So then, moving on again yeah. for the from the uh, transition from the championship yes. to the premiership. So, in terms of a lead sports scientist role, as you are at Aston Villa, has anything changed? Has that transition from championship to premiership meant any change for you day to day? Fixtures, number one fixtures. <laughs> it's, it's 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 when you when you reflect on it. Obviously, I've spent most of my career working with obviously League Two, League One, Champ, where you've got Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesdays, and it is just a battle of attrition. It's just you, you're constantly trying to keep the players fresh for the next game. And then 
all of a sudden, bang, you're in the Premier League and you, with what? We had four games, then it's an international break. We've got another four games. This isn't including the cup, but four games, then another international break. Then we get same again. And it's there's so much opportunity to to train. So I think as practitioners, we're able to athletically develop the players more through training in the Premier League than we are in the Championship. And I think that's that's a big issue with with the industry at the moment because a lot of research papers and a lot of advice is coming from practitioners within the Premier League who have this time with players to develop them athletically. And we're trying to apply it in the Championship and lower leagues when you don't have time. You, you don't have time. Everything's a match day minus one or a match day minus two before you're playing again. So how can you, you look at, I don't know, is it... Uh, number of sprints throughout a week and saying this is how you should expose and sprint expose in the week. You get that through the games. And it's it's a completely different shift in focus. Sports science within the championship for me was was the number one aim, recovery, getting them as recovered as possible before the next game. Whereas in the Premier League, it's all about athletic development and just fine-tuning those athletes to be the best that they can be. Um, so at the moment, that's I'd say that's the, the standout difference between between the two leagues at the moment. Obviously, the ability and that step up, you, you're dealing with athletes who are, I suppose, more complete. Um, they have more attributes, so they are skillful. They are uh, genetically strong and quick and the more of a complete package as opposed to to the lower leagues. Um, don't get me wrong, you're still working with those individuals, but maybe not as many which um, possess all those qualities. Um, I think the mentality is slightly different when you get higher up, when well, I'm talking like really high, you, you come across individuals who they do not want to lose in anything. They like, literally, it could be a game of head tennis. It could be a sprint. It could be just a simple box outside on the training pitch. They will not lose. They do not want to be a loser in any aspect of their, their, their training week. So I suppose you come across individuals like that a little bit more. Um, just one more thing on that. Has, has the expectation have you changed across that transition from championship to premiership? Uh, one thing maybe from the club, but also a second thing from the players. Have the new players expected more from you because of the jump in um, in leagues or is that not the case? Uh, I'd say no. I'd No. Um, I remember when I, one of my interview questions when I first came into Aston Villa, it was from Steve Round, who was on the interview board at the time and he was saying how... Like what? What is my main weakness? And I said, I suppose my main weakness is I've not worked in the Premier League yet. And his question for me was, "What would you do anything different in the Premier League to what you're doing now?" And you don't. It's it's still the same. You might be playing different competitions, uh, sorry, uh, better sides and different teams, and the, the stadiums you, that you go into might be bigger and it's on TV more. But the the support I give to a player doesn't change. Um, the reason I've got to the Premier League is because I've helped players try and get to where they want to get to. It's nothing to do with my own ambitions. It's about helping the, the player. And their goals might change, but the, my job stays the same. I help the player develop it athletically to, to meet the demands of the game and perform the best that they can do. So I don't, I don't feel under any more pressure. Um, structures have changed throughout the leagues, and now we're in a position where we've got ahead of performance and you have more culpability on a, a specific area. So I'd be culpable for the fitness of the team. Um, so if that isn't where it needs to be, I will be scrutinised more than, I suppose, when the lower leagues where you're responsible for basically everything. Um, you, you can really be scrutinised for that as much. So, yeah, you, you, you've got more pressure in that sense. But I, I think my job's still the same. It, whether it's League Two or the Premier League, you're still helping those players become the best they can be. Um, so we had a little chat about what influence you had at Burton day to day but what influence do you now have at Aston Villa in a premiership club what kind of questions does Dean obviously the manager come to you with on a day to day basis and what input can you give to to help him do his job better uh, I suppose my main questions are surrounding like I said getting the players prepared for the game um, so a lot of the questions we'll get asked are regarding dimensions timings of training sessions uh, where players are at physically, what were the, the drills like in, in terms of intensity relative to a game. Um, a big focus of the current regime is try and make everything at match tempo. So we need to try and get that information related to the manager. Um, 
We look at players individually as well about their own athletic development, where players need to improve, where players are weak, um, how we can get there, uh, breaking down training sessions to try and explain what physical adaptations we'll get from each individual drill and how we can manipulate that drill to get the outcome that we want. So say if there's a high speed running element and we need to make sure that we need to get our sprint in that particular drill, what dimensions do we need? What timings do we need? What recovery do we need? Uh, they're the kind of questions you get asked on a day-to-day basis. Um, we're in a current regime where they're very open and accepting of sports science support. Uh, we'll have daily morning meetings where they'll take on board what you say, they'll listen to you. Um, and it's a very relaxed atmosphere in that sense. You don't feel like you can't, you can't say say what's on your mind without getting criticised. You'll get questioned, but in a good way. Um that's the number one question all the time like why is this happening if you don't have an answer maybe we won't do it but it just makes you sure of yourself when you've got something to say that there's a reason why you why you're saying it so that's that's the way we've got this structure in place at the moment but it's very dependent on on which manager you're working under um but that's that's the current setup at aston villa at the moment so I just want to move into a new area, um, something that was based on a presentation that you gave for Catapult at one of their meetups, which I think was at Aston Villa. And it was around multi-mechanical modeling. And it's something that you described really well in the presentation. The presentation's on YouTube for anyone that is interested <laughs> yes. in having a having a watch and a listen to that. But would you mind just giving us a bit of an overview of what... Yep multi-mechanical modeling actually is and then how that affects your day-to-day practice with with the club and before i say anymore i'm just going to hand it straight over to you and say would you mind giving some top <laughs> context around multi-mechanical models yeah um okay so multi-mechanical models is something we've been doing for the last two three years um i did it at qpr i actually picked it up from chris barnes he's the first person who introduced to it to me um but I suppose it's it's still a new and emerging field around how we're analysing games, how we're analysing the external loads of training and how we're presenting that to, to the players and coaches to try and give it a little bit more context um, to the game. So one thing that we're doing at the moment is we're collecting information from training, um, either external or internal training load. So when you come to internal training load, you're looking at heart rate, you might be looking at uh, lactate responses to training you might be doing subjective scores like rpe and obviously when we come to external loads we're using gps um with the new systems we're looking at accelerometers uh, gyroscopes magnetometers um magnetometers sorry and things like that um to try and quantify that external workload of the player so our job as sports scientists is to quantify the load of competition the demand of competition and then look at training and how we're building to meet those demands and that game is always our reference point. But one thing that's always just not sit right with me is that when we get this information, we report these metrics in isolation. So we'll take a linear metric, such as total distance, and report that to a coach or a player and, and ha- have them assume that it's preparing them for the game when it's not. And it's the same with high-speed running as well, same with sprint distance. So I suppose what multi-mechanical models do are trying to combine these metrics together together to try and give a more context of a training session and context to this information in respect to a game so i'll try and give an example um if you take total distance of what we do in a week with a player they might do four sessions and those four sessions leading into a game cover 5k 7k 6k and 4k now i could go out and run those distances I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will go out and run those distances in half the time that it takes to do that training session, but it doesn't prepare you for the demands of a game. Then you might do it with, make it relative to time, so meters per minute, but again, you might do those metrics, but it doesn't prepare you for the, to, for the demands of a game. You need to combine it with, um, with the other metrics that they perform as well, so the change of direction, the high-speed running, the jumps, the, or these little micro-movements as well. You need to try and combine it to create it as a demand in relation to to a Saturday. So that's one thing that research is starting to look at. It's only recently it's been started to do, uh, that people have started to look at this area and this field. Um, now I've, I've done a bit of, of a lit review around this to try and find out what papers are out there. And I can only actually find one. Maybe I'm not being very extensive in my research, but it was a paper by Adam Owen um, who looked at this principle. So what they did, they took four key metrics 
total distance, high speed running, um, sprint distance and axles and desoles. They took these bits of information from a training session. So say your player's gone out and cut 5k at 200 meters high sprint running, 30 meters sprint, 40, 50 axles, desoles. Then they'll divide them by what they typically do in a game or by what they did maximally in a game. They'll add them all together and create a percentage score. So they'll create a percentage score for volume and then they'll create a percentage score relative to the time they're out on the pitch to create an intensity score, if that makes sense. So they can then quantify that training session as being 50% of a game volume at 80% intensity of a game. And that's that's basically what they're trying to do and create a, a, a more contextual way of representing training to a player or coach that they understand. Because if I went to a player and said they cover the 5K or 7K, it doesn't really tell you much. Even at metres per minute, it doesn't really tell you too much about how they've prepared for for a weekend. Um, so that's one thing we've done. Um, we used five metrics, though. Um, so we sat down, we discussed what was important, what we felt was important to, to look at, um, and what we felt was important for the way we played. So we got five metrics, total distance, high-intensity running, accelerations, decelerations, and player load. Um, we justified why these metrics were important. <laughs> Before I carry on, Jack Grealish is just about to walk in, so he might disrupt me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's coming in. You all right? <laughs> he's gone. Sorry, I'll go back to where I was. <laughs> so, yeah, so we sat down and created five metrics. Well, we didn't create five metrics. We, we established five metrics which were important for the way we played. Um, so those were total distance, high intensity running, accelerations, decelerations, and player load. Um, now, the reason we used total distance and high speed running is because we know from research, it's one of the highest potential risk factors for soft tissue injury. So if you have a spike in, in those metrics, you're more likely to, to break down and have a muscular injury. We also knew from our performance data that whenever we covered the highest amount of total distance in a game or the most amount of high-speed running in a game as a squad, we had a more advantageous result of the game. The, the games we won, we covered more high-speed running, more total distance. It was as simple as that. So there was two things. It was it, it was relatable to the risk of injury and it was relatable to our performance. Then we had accelerations and decelerations included as well. Uh, we recognise this as being the highest area of a game where you're going to have mechanical stress. Uh, we see it's being a key contributor to um, biomechanical load. And again, we feel it is an important metric for injury prevention. Um, so we included that as well. So then we have player load as well, which is obviously one of the metrics created by Catapult. It uses the inertial sensors, but it looks at the change of acceleration in all three axes, so X, Y, and Z. So it looks at um, those tiny micro movements as well of the player. And it's been shown through research to be a reliable and useful measure of player activity. Uh, so we included that as well. So they make up our five important metrics. Um, now, one thing we do slightly different to the research is rather than divide it by what the maximum output of that player is in a game, we divide it by what their average output in a game is. So total distance, we divide it by what they typically do total distance in a game, high speed running, axles, desoles, and player load. Again, we add them all together divide them by five times by 100 and create this percentage score. So we know now from a training session for that particular player, from what they do on a game for their own individual match day averages, we can say today's session was X percent of a game volume. And we can say it is X percent intensity of a game. And this has really helped communicate to the players and coaches because we're able to one, meet the aims of the manager. He wants everything to be done at match tempo. So when we come to um, shape and set pieces or possession, small-sided games, whether it's running drills, whatever, we want to try and train how we play. So we want everything to be done with a relative intensity to a game. Um, so that is a way of representing how a player has worked with individual drills uh, and reporting it to a coach. And that that's something we've we've adopted and, and used and we, we can create databases of all the individual drills. So we know this particular drill is when performed in these dimensions, we'll create relatively the type of intensity we're looking for. So we'll include that in, 
it's just another way of looking at, at training and drills that I suppose we weren't doing before. Um, and I think that's the way we need to be going. Don't get me wrong, it's important to look at metrics in isolation. It is important to look at things in isolation, but we have to look at them in a way that's contextually similar to how it's played within within a game as well. Um, because a 6K distance in a game is completely different to the 6K just running. So why do we continue to report it in in that fashion to coaches? So uh, that that's something, I don't know, it just sits well with me. I like, I like the way it's, it's, it, it presents the information to coaches and players. It's difficult because there is this lacking of research around its validity and reliability and uh, and its use. But I, I found it to work certainly with the intensity scores that we get using that with Gabbit's acute chronic model. It works fantastically well for soft tissue injuries. Um, if you see spikes in intensity, when you're looking at a number of metrics combined together, rather than just RPE and time, it does correlate. I know it's, it's early days, but it does correlate with soft tissue injuries. And I think that is scope a big scope to look at various avenues on how this can be used to to better our understanding of, of training loads, certainly the external workloads anyway. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jack. Hope you're enjoying part one. So part two carries on from where part one left off with detailing a little bit more around multi-mechanical models. So hopefully that you are finding uh, very useful. In part two, we also discuss Jack's views on subjective markers, so RPEs, and why he doesn't collect them, and some views around that, which has stemmed back from his days in League Two at Burton, as we've discussed in, in, uh, in part one. We also discuss a little bit around testing and screening and delivering information to players and coaches. So just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And I personally visited their warehouse in Belfast and was super, super impressed with this, firstly the scale of the operation and second, the quality of the products that were leaving that warehouse to be shipped to various different parts of the world, to Australia, to Dubai, to the UK, Europe, etc. So if you're interested in a full gym fit out or just adding to what you've already got, make sure you consider the guys at Blackbox and you can see some of their projects right now on Instagram or their Twitter feed. So they can be found at BLK Box Fitness and also on the website at blkboxfitness.com. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. So just diving back into the, the differences between the Championship uh, and the Premier League, which obviously the, that, that transition has gone on quite recently, but one yeah. big thing is um, the amount of games that you play. So in terms of the structure of the week and how the multi-mechanical model fits in... Um, in that structure, how does it? How does that structure differ from from Championship to Premiership, and how does that affect you as a practitioner? Um, so obviously, with the Premier League, you're more likely to have a, a good four weeks worth of training before you go go into a game. So you can periodize that week leading into a game uh, using your intensity and volume scores. Um, say, for instance, on a match day plus two, you'll do uh, reduce volume but keep the intensity quite high. Then on that Tuesday session, so the match day minus four, you can really ramp up that volume uh, and drop the intensity a little bit. Um, then on the Wednesday, you might have a switch of that. So you have, uh, again, greater intensity whilst that volume reduces and you start to drop that volume leading into a game. Um, and then obviously day before a game, that intensity can be relatively high still, but the, the volume of the session will be really quite low down. Um, 
in terms of the differences between the leagues, the way a player reacts from a game and how you prepare them leading into a game remains the same. Um, you still got that 48-hour window. I'm a big believer in reducing that load as much as possible, that 48 hours pre-game. Um, and again, obviously, that 48 hours post-game as well, you need to really reduce the volume as much as possible. Um, you can increase the intensity ultimately in that match day minus one. I think it's nice to be nice and bright going into a game. Um, but aside from that, nothing really changes. You've just got the luxury with the Premier League to have, like I said, a four weeks of training going into a game. Whereas in the Championship, everything's try and keep that volume as low as possible, keep the intensity high, um, still train how you want to play, um, but just be wary that obviously you need to, to recover appropriately before the next game. So one thing that you mentioned that was really interesting in the presentation for Catapult was individualising weighting factors based on certain metrics and maybe some individuals who you may focus on certain metrics over yes. others. Can you just explain that for us? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so obviously with multi-mechanical models, you take five metrics and you add them all together. So the, the problem with that, I suppose, is you give each variable equal weight. You're saying the amount of total dif- distance they do in a training session is just as important as that most the high-speed running they do is just as important to change direction, uh, the XLs, D cells, and player load. Um, one thing I found over time is probably one of the most important metrics that we look at in isolation is the change direction, like the XLs and D cells and things like that. So we actually give more weight to to those metrics as opposed to total distance. And that created a more reflective value of of match day data that we're looking at before and it so we just to do that uh we took their average from the game without boring you too much on the maths <laughs> what they did in a game uh doubled it and then divided by sorry what they do in a game uh halved it and then obviously that is the score that we divide uh that training session value by um to give that double weight uh if that makes sense. No, <laughs> it's complete sense. No problem at all. Yeah, that was just, just by playing around with it. Because like I said, there's no research around it, apart from that one paper that looked at, again, comparing it to maximal outputs of a game. Um, so we just played around with it. We found that was a better equation for us to be more reflective of the demands of a game. And it, it worked for us. So um, you might want to look at individual players as well. Obviously, each player position varies. And they might have certain physical attributes that they perform more in a game as opposed to others so you might want to give that more weight into into their player load metric but the good thing about this this equation is it creates a percentage specific to that player so it's not in relation to the squad total distance it's related to their individual outputs within a game um so whether you're a center forward whether you're a center half whether you're a, a fullback you know what percentage score you're getting from training is reflective of what you do in a game so say if you've got training in place that doesn't really differentiate between positions say you don't do unit work or you don't do drills that um expose a player to the positional demands that experience in a game you can take that to a coach and say right it's all well and good we're doing these training sessions but our center halves are doing three times what they do in a game each time we're doing this drill so why are we stressing them more than they need to be stressed than um than they're going to be on a saturday or vice versa you might be finding that we're doing drills that aren't exposing these players to the to the demands of a game um, that they're going to experience in a game. It's all well and good for these positions, but these positions that they're nowhere near the levels of volume that they're going to or intensity they're going to experience in a game. So it just creates those questions that you can have with a coach and how we can make each drill more more specific to that player. There's there's been a shift with the way we're doing our work as sports scientists now, where everything's talked about giving things context whether that's uh, the work of Paul Bradley at Liverpool, John Moore. Obviously, he's got these contextual runs, these specific high-speed runs, which I really like, by the way. And that's the way I like to get my high-speed run into players. Um, but I think that's the way we need to go with with um, with the way we report data as well. And I think this model is, is one that we can do that. Um, so, yeah, so it just doesn't make sense if we just divide it by time. It's not... It's, it's too basic. It's too basic. Um, so, yeah. so one thing I had firmly on the list of uh, questions to ask you, and we've, we've kind of dived a little bit into it. You've mentioned it in um, in terms of what you did at Burton. That was a move away from collecting RPEs. Yes. So I just want to touch on that again and say, have you integrated that back at Villa? Yeah. 
or are you still not a big fan? Uh, no, no. If I'm being honest with you, I don't really do anything in the way of subjective monitoring with players. Um, not in the in the sense of RPEs or wellness questionnaires. Um, like I said, maybe this is stemmed from my own personal development when I was at Burton and I'd do them. Um, after a couple of years, I found out how easily manipulated they are. Their scores would vary depending on whether they're they're playing or not. If they're in the squad, they might lie just to try and protect themselves because they might think if they've got a high score, they might not get a chance to start on a Saturday. So it was too influenced by other other influencing factors in their lifestyle and their situation. Um, and you speak to many people about RPEs and how they're used. They always say that it's a, a cue to start a conversation. So say if an RPE is high, say if they are expressing aches and pains, it starts a conversation of why they're feeling like that. And I, for me, I'd, I've always been of, of the mind just to have proper relationships with players. Um, if you're not able to have a good relationship with a player, asking them how they feel on a scale of 1 to 10 isn't going to help that situation. Um, and I get more from it by watching them and, and speaking to them and, and getting to know a player than I would by asking them a scale of 1 to 10. Um, I know time shouldn't shouldn't criticise it, but RPEs have been around for 40 years. I know I'm probably going to get a lot of stick for this, but <laughs> I know they work. And they've been around for 40 years. And to go to... I'm say I'm trying to think of an example of how to to say why I've got this mindset. But imagine if I went home to my partner and said, "How are you feeling every day on a scale of one to 10? I think after day two she'd slap. <laughs> like it, it's the same with players. We see we work with these players and work with this coaching staff, and we see them more than we do our family. Um, so why would we approach them any different? Like we need to just have relationships. We need to speak to them and understand them. And I think RPEs is just doing ourselves an injustice. No wonder they won't be able to speak to us or converse with us because we're coming across as too applied and practical. And it's, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we do need to look at subjective more, but from, from what I've experienced, I've, I've been in that position where I've jotted them down every day. I've tried to use them to influence training, but from my experience, I influence training more by knowing a player and knowing coach than asking them how they feel on a scale of 1 to 10 and getting them to fill out a questionnaire. So that's why I've never sat well with them. Um, so just to confirm, so instead of reporting a number back to a coach and say, okay, player X has reported 4 when the group average is 8 or whatever the example may be, so instead of doing that, you're actually reporting a conversation or having a conversation with a coach about the conversation you had with the player rather than reporting the number. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You, you you need to be in that position where you're comfortable and can go easily between them and say, look, just so where these are, are struggling a bit today, you can give the reasons why they're probably feeling that, using your your external workload uh, metrics to back that up or whatever reason you need to to back it up. Um, but you can use that information to say, look, this is why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Now, I don't mean undermine their trust by, say, if it's a personal issue, going through that with everyone and making that public, but... There are certain situations where you can you can help a player by protecting them, not by pulling them out of training, but manipulating the training session to to get the most out of them. Um, and that, that's the way it should be done. Um, I, I've I've tried it like when we did RPs in the past. I can tell you now, if I went to a manager, a certain managers I've worked with, and said they're oh they're eight on a on a scale of one to ten today, I've had the feeling. I'd be told where to go. It wouldn't make any bit of difference. And I'm not protecting that player. My job at the end of the day is, is to get the player where they need to get to. And on the flip side of that, there's times when players will moan that they they're, they're work too hard. When in fact, we know it's the right thing for them to to crack, kick on and, and, and carry on the way they're doing. So take the promotion from Burton from League Two to League One. They were the highest training loads I've ever known. Under Hasselbank, they, those training loads were excessive. It, we were renowned for it. We would do like running sessions, two, three K at the end of training sessions. Um, we would really work the players into the ground. I, I, I love that the, that model we had in place back then. Um, ask any of them players, an RPE scale, they get tens most of the most of the week. <laughs> or match day minus one when they come to you and say a two. And speak to any of them players now, they say it was too much. But you look at our record during that season, I think between November and the end of the season, we lost like three or four games. We won every game. They, they felt shattered going into them. But we won every game and we were renowned at that time for being the fittest team in the league. And that's ultimately why we had that group of players who 
out of the blue got promoted and that, I think that was our, that was our strength it was our ability to to work harder than the other teams and that came from the way we trained so you take RPEs from that season it, it would it would have gone against us for our it would have been detrimental to us because we would have said oh they're working too hard and say if the manager took that on board and listened we wouldn't have been able to train the way that led to our success um so yeah so that's that's why I don't I don't like like using RPEs <laughs> so, do, do you think that planning or pre-planning that you use at Burton would have you would have worked yeah. as successfully with players further up the footballing pyramid what the the, the structure yeah, we had the workload that you mentioned do you think that obviously been the highest you've ever seen do you think yeah. that would have worked with players higher up the footballing pyramid one thing I've learned whatever I've, I've seen success with different approaches from managers and different philosophies and the, the number one key is the players have to buy into it, it, it I've seen success with completely different ends of the spectrum the number one rule is players have to buy into it um, so it all depends on who that manager is at the time um, what relationship they can generate with the players um, and how they, how they sell their their store really that's that's what leads to success um, so how did Hasselbank get the lads to buy into that um, that really high workload? Um, we he inherited a team that was a very good group of lads. They were a group of players who'd been together for a couple of seasons. They played together closely for a couple of seasons, so they knew each other. Um, they'd come through hardship. They've obviously come through two years on the bounce where we hadn't got promotion. Um, we got to sorry, we got so close to a promotion, so playoff semi final and playoff final, and, and been unsuccessful. So that that drove them a little bit more. Um, they were frustrated in a sense because obviously the managers left as well. And they're like, oh, it's, it's frustrating. But then you've got this manager come in um, who works them hard. But there, there was a a purpose behind it. I, I really liked the periodization that was in place at that time. So it was a more a Dutch approach, where I suppose you'd call it dimensional periodization um so one week would have a theme of being large areas the second week would be a, a theme of medium areas and the final week would be a theme of small areas so when i talk about that that first week everything will be 10 v10s big pitches um the runs that we do will be extensive the middle week would be medium so everything range from 7 v7s 5 v5s um moderate sized areas and then obviously the final week would be a uh, small week where everything's 1v1s, 2v2s, and everything throughout that week would follow that that principle. Um, so if you look at that volume intensity scores, the intensity every week would be high, but you'd get your, your, your fluctuations in your individual metrics, so total distance and change in direction, depending on week, what week you're on. So your your large week would expose into more total distance, whereas your small week would subject to more change direction. And then you knew for the next couple of weeks they weren't going to expose those variables. So each individual variable keep overlapping but periodizing throughout the season it it worked really well and the, the we had those chronic workloads i suppose similar to what gabbert's pushing at the moment you've got up to those chronic workloads don't get me wrong route worked them hard but we're able to just kick on that little bit more without making it too much of a step and then we were able to maintain through the rest of the season um and certainly look at the injury rates for that season as well the lads who were playing it was the best i've ever seen it was just none of them broke down um Albeit the players who weren't playing, <laughs> that was a different story. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's 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 the model he had in place there. But if you, I suppose, took it to a to a higher league, um, like I said, it all just depends on whether the players buy into it. That's ultimately the the crux of it, really. Just putting the subjective questions firmly to bed. Yes. Yeah. Would there be any sort of environment that would? make you change your mind on this. Now, I promise this is the last question because I've kept you long enough and after this, we're definitely going to do a, uh, a little roundup. Um, yeah, I think there would be. Um, it, it, when you read about it, when you look at the justification for why you'd use subjective scores, it all does make sense. It all does make sense. Um, obviously, all the research validates it as well, so it is... Um, like stupid of me in a sense to disregard all that time and effort spent looking at this this area um 
I suppose, like I said, it's my experiences that led me to this this opinion. So I've come from an environment where I would be the only member of staff to conduct a variety of jobs. And I had to make that decision of what was actually important um, to try and get through my day. Because so, the amount of jobs and responsibilities you had was was ridiculous. But I suppose when you come into an environment where you've got more staff and more resources, you're probably got more time to invest more time back into that and look at it and see how you can influence and going back to like your your multi-mechanical models there you'd use that subjective score within other areas that you're monitoring as well so whether that's your your sprint scores or your your training load data and using that as a package to justify why players feeling that the way they do um so i think my mind could change um but as it stands i still don't feel that that time should be invested in an area that we can just have a conversation with the player um so just coming back to the multi-mechanical models one last time, um, is the information reported, how, how is that information reported to the coaches and how is, does that differ to how that's reported to the players if they come and ask questions uh, of you regarding regarding this? Depends on the player. Completely depends on the player. Um, we've got a way of reporting to the players at the moment, which I really quite like. So I don't know if you've heard of a tool called Snagit. Um but say we've got the so it's, it's like a, a cropping tool on on the on on a computer. But you can get the match reports, um, crop them, add notes, do a voiceover to them, and send them individually to a player via WhatsApp, whatever platform you want. Um, and that works quite well with players. So you can use that to report to players. You can use that to report to like the group chat with the coaches. Um, and that's that's the way we will report it. When it comes to multi mechanical model metrics, that that score would stay the same for coaches and players. Um, the coaches will probably ask more about why that intensity score or volume score was higher. They might want to know what area of that that equation was higher than the rest. Um, so you might do a, a running drill, for instance, where it's all linear and the total distance high speed runners through the roof, but there's no change direction. But that intensity score will still be so high because of the amount of total distance high speed running. So it'll give you a high score, but again, it's not relative to the game, but that'll probably a question asked as to why that score is higher by a coach whereas a player that they just want to know how much they've done in relation to a game cool happy days so that's my last question okay um, i know i said that before <laughs> but the main thing is that i know that people out there who are yeah. listening we're gonna are gonna have miles more questions than i've got so my next question <laughs> to you again promise last question yeah. um Where's the best place for people to get in yes. touch with you and have a little chat, whether it's more mechanical models, subjectives, etc. Is social media, email, uh, what, what's the best? A uh, uh, number of ways. Um, obviously, I'm on numerous social media platforms. Um, Twitter, um, my Twitter handle is at Sharky Stories if you want to get on there and ask any questions that you might have. So I've said this about five times, but this is definitely yeah. the last question. No problem. So yeah. one of the players nearly walked in, or did walk in <laughs> on our conversation, but it's come to seven yes. o'clock. What yes. is that player still doing in the facility at seven <laughs> yeah. o'clock? Yeah, it's ten past seven in the evening. Um, it, it's the culture we have here at the moment. Um, so we've got Jack Grealish come in. He's just been doing his gym session. It's what, six, seven o'clock in the evening. Um, part of his routine is he'll train in the morning he'll go find a little room have a little snooze and then come and do a gym in the afternoon um, and you tend to find that with a number of players you talk about those differences whether that's to do with facilities or what but you've got players who want to stay around longer um, they want to do the right things uh, I suppose it helps being in an environment where it is nice to stay I don't know anyone in the, who in their right mind would want to stay in some of the gyms I've worked at for any more than needed to. But um, yeah, we've got just got players who are willing to to hang around and not feel pressured when they're training, don't feel pressured to do the extras. And yeah, if anyone who's visited the training ground, I suppose that's the number one thing they say is about that that closeness we've got as a group at the moment. Um, everyone's encouraging each other. People want to do the extra. Um, certainly after training sessions, we've got extras groups all the time. Um, so yeah, so that's the environment we're working in at the moment. So hopefully uh, it's the right attitude and that application will turn itself into results soon. Uh, yeah. Fingers crossed. Well, thank yeah, you very much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. No, it's okay. It's okay. I need to make a huge effort to get down to see you guys and actually see all this 
in action. Yeah, of course. Environment in action. Anytime, just pop down. Um, I'll be able to show you around. That'd be an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much for your time, and I'll chat soon. All right, I'll speak to you soon. See you later. Thanks for tuning in to episode 259 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Jack. So big thanks to Jack for giving up his time and telling us all he knows about multi-mechanical models, about his views on subjective data, um, and also um, why Jack Grealish is still in the building at 7 o'clock at night after training. So I really appreciate Jack coming on. Also big thanks to Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, Hawking Dynamics and I Measure You for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys supporting it. So really appreciate it as always. So I've got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. More uh, in the football realm, the soccer realm, but also dive into other areas and other sports as well. So thank you very much for your support and I will chat to you next week. <laughs>